Uh, welcome to any visitors amongst us. My name is Mike and it's great to have you here. Uh, we are continuing on in our series in Acts and before we get into our reading today, I uh, just want to mention that uh, it was actually about a year ago we started this series, right at the end of July we started it. We've actually had a couple of breaks along the way, a term out the here and there, some holidays out, we've done some other things. Um, but I just want to remind you a little bit of why Acts, why are we spending so much time in Acts? Uh, well, mainly because it's the Word of God, actually. That's really the big reason. But also because, as a secondary reason, it's our family history. This is where we come from. But it's not just history. Uh, it's also, it also teaches us as well. This is what the, wor- the church was like, and this is what the church is like. This should be our experience as well. But actually, one of the biggest reasons to, to choose to go through Acts is because it hits upon our mission statement so hard. In fact, I would say it hits it like a sledgehammer again and again and again and again. It is calling us to to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. And particularly that last one, make disciples, acts, hammers home to us again and again. This is who we are, and this is what we are called to do. And I want to encourage you, whether it's me or someone else up here speaking from acts, listen to what God is calling you to what he is calling you to do. Today, uh, we're going to hit particularly upon love God, but also to love, uh, sorry, to make disciples as well. And as we we get into Acts 18, or before we get into Acts 18, let's just uh, stop and pray. Almighty God, we do indeed come to your word now. O Lord, you have spoken. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to us today to how we might live as your people in this world and make you known and see your kingdom come. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Saviour. Amen. So if you've got a Bible handy, your phone, uh, you might want to turn to Acts 18, verses 18 to 28. Acts 18, verses 18, the words will be up here behind me. Let me read them to you. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencria because of a vow he had taken. He arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fever and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed. 
for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. This is God's word to us. I want to talk today about a haircut, a dinner, and a disciple. Because today we get to see the birth of a disciple, the disciple Apollos, who will go on to be one of the key evangelists in the early church. But our our passage doesn't actually want us to focus on Apollos too much. Uh, It's not mainly about him, it's more about where he came from. It's a, a passage encouraging us to see that we, you and I, can be and should be like Priscilla and Aquila that it is through everyday people carrying out everyday faithfulness, like inviting people into their homes, that disciples are born, they come to life, and that they can go on to do great things, mighty things for God, such as Apollos did. The question is, will we? Will we be faithful like them? Well, Paul is on the tail end of his second missionary trip, if you're joining us today, and it's almost like he's got a head for home now. Uh, He wants to get home to, uh, to Antioch, and he'll get there today, but the first thing we're told is that in Sencria, on the coast of Corinth, uh, Paul has his hair cut off to complete a vow. Uh, What is that all about? Is that just a random comment for us? Now, I'm a, I'm a very curious person. My wife sometimes tells me far too curious. And I'd love to know exactly why Paul took this vow, but we aren't told. We could take some guesses, but we aren't told. Uh, we are told, essentially, what type of vow it is and the general reason he took it. Uh, and we're told this because he had all of his hair cut off, which almost certainly means that it was a form of Nazarite vow, which comes from the book of Numbers, number six, if you want to look it up. A Nazarite vow is not one you have to take, it's one you choose to do. And it's a vow that you would choose for two reasons, to say thanks to God for something particular, or to dedicate yourself more fully to God. Those things don't actually have to be separate, they can overlap as well. But those are the reasons you would do it. And while you were on a Nazarite vow, you weren't allowed to drink any wine, uh, which in that day and age is a bit more of a sacrifice uh, than today because wine was sort of the main drink you would drink, alcoholic drink. Uh, It was the main source of joy. They didn't have the variety of food and drinks like we do. There were a few other things as well, like you weren't allowed to go near dead bodies. That probably doesn't seem too bad, does it? But while you are on that vow, for the duration of it, you would not cut your hair, and then come the end of it, you would get it all cut off. Perhaps that would be a little less significant for me than some of you out there. (laughs) But we can be pretty sure this is what Paul was doing. He was a Jew, after all. So we know that the main form of the vow that he took, and we know the broad reason he took it to say thanks to God or to dedicate himself more fully to God. But what does this mean for us? Well, Paul is an example for you and I of someone who had a living relationship with God. Let me put it this way. If you're a husband here today, is it, is it a good thing to buy your wife flowers or to give them a card at times saying thanks? Is that a good thing to do? 
Yes, there's a few women nodding as well. But wives, is it a good thing, a healthy thing at times to say thank you to your husband for all they do? Is that a good thing to do? Yeah. And our relationship with the living God shouldn't be any less. In fact, if anything, it should be more. Now, God doesn't need chocolates, does he? And he's got more than enough flowers, actually. What God wants and what he notices is our joy in him. He notices our commitment to him. And this is why taking a vow is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing to do. It can build our relationship with him. If we have something to say thanks about, and it was fantastic at the first service, there's multiple things people were giving thanks for, particularly that day. Can we commit to doing something to say thank you to God? If we want to build our relationship with God, can we commit to doing something, removing a joy from our life, not a bad thing, but a joy from our life to make more space to take joy in God? Can we do that? Now, perhaps don't grow your hair out and then cut it off. I'm not necessarily saying that. But do commit yourself to God. Make space in your life for God. Take a joy out of your life so there's more room for Him. It'll be well worth it. This is one of the ways that we embrace God. This is one of the ways we live with Him. We do indeed say thanks. We do indeed realize that we need to commit ourselves to Him again or more deeply. Never, and hear me here, brothers and sisters, Never, ever be duped into thinking that God is satisfied with a dead or static relationship with us. He is not. He has given his son's life. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Let's commit ourselves to this relationship with him. Let's live with him. Amen? Well, Paul spends a little more time in Ephesus, but then he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And the Ephesians actually ask Paul to stay for a bit longer, and a little surprisingly, Paul declines. Again, it's like he's got this head for home. But in verse 21, he promises them that he will be back if it is God's will. And I can give you a head up, it is God's will. He'll be back in Ephesus soon enough. But in verse 22, Paul makes the trip home to Jerusalem and then Antioch, seemingly for a bit of a rest. But it's only a little while later, it's actually only one verse later here in Acts, that Paul is heading out again, heading out on his third missions trip to check on the churches he has planted and going around and strengthening the disciples, we're told. And I think we're given a picture here of Paul's heart. Paul loved the churches he'd planted. He cared for them deeply. And while he couldn't stay on the mission field all the time, it wasn't very long before he was back out there again checking on them. And I'm not calling myself Paul here. But I've got to confess, even when I'm on holiday, I worry about you as well. I wonder how you're doing. The focus of our passage, though, and our focus, shouldn't be on Paul. It should be back in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila because it's there that God wants us to meet a man called Apollos. At this stage, Christianity was still very much part of Judaism. 
so it met in the synagogue. Uh, There wouldn't actually be a need for church buildings for some time yet. The day would come when Christians would be kicked out of the synagogue, and, well, then we'd need one. But at this stage, it was very natural for Christians to still meet in the synagogue. And this is where we find Priscilla and Aquila meeting Apollos. And Apollos is a really interesting guy. He's Jewish for a start, maybe not too unique, but his whole culture is tied up with knowing God. He's from Alexandria, northern Africa, so he wasn't a local to Ephesus. He was an educated man, we're told. He's smart, or got some smarts about him. He had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, uh, which is important. Uh, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, we are told. Now, that could mean the way of God or the way of Jesus. Uh, Actually, both are probably true here. And he spoke with great fever, we're told. He was a passionate man in sharing his faith. And lastly, he taught about Jesus accurately. That is so key. Apollos had a lot going for him, a lot. But actually, he didn't have everything. He lacked some important information. And verse 25 here tells us that Apollos, despite teaching about Jesus accurately, only knew the baptism of John. His knowledge about Jesus went so far, but it was limited. Apollos knew John's teaching that we needed to repent before God, which is what John's baptism was all about. And seemingly he knew of Jesus as a prophet, perhaps even as the one that John pointed to, but he didn't know anything, anything about being baptized in Jesus' name. And the question here is, was Apollos a Christian or not? And actually, the answer is slightly harder than you think. You look at the various commentary across the centuries, and some say, no, but he's very, very close. And others say, yes, but only just. And I think it's fair to say, and I hope this is helpful, Apollos, if anything, if there can be a dividing line between a Christian and not, probably has a bit of a foot in each camp. He's in the process He has faith, but it's limited, partially limited by his knowledge. And I say this partially because of the people we're going to meet next when we get into chapter 19. A little bit of a tease. But this means that Apollos knew the start of the gospel. He knew about Jesus, but he didn't know the fullness of the gospel. As I said before, Apollos seemingly knew that Jesus was a prophet who talked about the way to God, but we've got a question, ask the question whether he knew that Jesus was the way to God. There's a difference. Because that's what we are baptized into when we're baptized in Jesus' name. John's baptism was indeed a declaration of our uh, need before God, but our baptism in Jesus' name is a direct declaration of our trust in Jesus. Different. He has died in our place and paid the price. We have assurance in him. We have right standing with God. That little bit more information is oh so important and gets to the heart of the gospel. And what do Priscilla and Aquila do when they hear this enthusiasm? You can imagine them, can't you, sitting in the synagogue, Apollos up there, speaking about Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila going, yes, yes, that's good, yes. And then waiting 
waiting for the rest. And? And Apollos doesn't give it. But they don't write Apollos off or, or storm out of the synagogue. No, they invite him into their home, we're told in the NIV. Literally in the Greek, it's they receive him. They take him in. And look, I don't actually know if they had dinner together. I sort of imagine they did. But it is in that home that they gently share with Apollos the full gospel, the bit that he is lacking. Or as verse 26 puts it, they explain to him the way of God more adequately, more accurately. And Apollos listens, he he learns, he hears the fullness of the good news about Jesus. And now this man who had so many gifts and talents is fully equipped. He knows the fullness of the good news. And Apollos very quickly goes on to be a key evangelist in the early church, as verses 27 and 28 tell us. Now he brings all his skills and knowledge to bear to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And you can imagine how stoked Priscilla and Aquila must have been. They're like, yeah, we put into his life. Look at him go. But also imagine how sad it would have been if Priscilla and Aquila hadn't said anything. If they hadn't invited him back to their home or taken him inside. If they hadn't fooled him in on what he was lacking. So close. So close. Yet not quite there. Apollos would have been believing in Jesus, but with one arm and leg tied behind his back, which I think would have made life very difficult. And this is the point for us, because there are still people inside and outside the church today who know they need God. They know that. They know they need to be right with God. They might be well educated. They might have a lot of knowledge about the Bible or Jesus, but they don't have it all. They're missing that last bit. They need someone who will invite them in, who will receive them and share it with them, who will be a Priscilla and Aquila for them. You know, our nation has a Christian history. We have national holidays on Jesus' birth and death. You'd think it couldn't get much better than that. But in my experience, most people do not have all the information about Jesus. Would you agree with that? They don't know who Jesus really is, what he has really done for them and the life that he offers them. And they need someone to receive them, to take them in, to invite them home or invite them to church or a small group or to Alpha, but to share with them. You know, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, we've been told in Acts. They were leather workers. Not the most educated people, certainly not a prestigious job, but that didn't stop them. Someone had shared the gospel with them once and they were willing to do likewise. And praise God they were. I want to tell you a story of someone a lot like Apollos, not exactly the same, but a lot. I think you'll see the similarities. In 16th century England, there was a man called Hugh, Hugh Latimer. Say hi to Hugh. Uh, He's dead, of course. But you can meet him one day and get this story from his mouth. Hugh was a very learned man. He, He had a thorough knowledge of the Bible and could speak with a lot of eloquence. And Hugh was a bishop 
in the Church of England. You'd hope he had a lot of Bible knowledge, wouldn't you? But Hugh wasn't a Christian. Surprise. He wasn't born again, as we we would say. Like many in his day and age, and today, uh, Hugh thought the way to heaven was by good works, by being good enough for God. Now, I'm not saying that Apollos believed this, but like Apollos, Hugh lacked something. But thank goodness there was a monk called Bilney. Bilney knew Hugh and admired him, and and Bilney didn't have a lot of education. Uh, He didn't really have any renown to him. In fact, people often called him Little Bilney, uh, not as an insult, he, he just was little. But Bilney knew something Hugh didn't. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, his Savior, the one chosen by God to pay for his sin and Hugh's. He knew that God had given the greatest cost, paid the greatest costs in the universe to have him as his son. Well, Bill wonder, Bilney wondered if Hugh might be saved as well. And so Bilney prayed about this, and I've got to think God gave him the answer. Because Bilney hit upon the idea that, that priests in this time have to hear people's confession. And so one day when Hugh was serving in the church, Bilney came up to him and asked Hugh to hear his confession. Pretty sneaky, isn't it? And Hugh said he would. So they went into the confessional and and Bilney confessed to Hugh. He confessed to Hugh that he was a sinner. A terrible sinner in need, unable to save himself. That his good works would do nothing. But thanks be to God, Jesus had died for him. And now by faith, by trusting in Jesus, Bilney's sin was taken away. And Jesus' righteousness was credited to him entirely apart from any good works. Bilney confessed it all right. He confessed the gospel to Hugh, which is actually what all our testimonies should do. I don't know if this was the first time Hugh had heard the gospel, but we know that it was this time that stuck with Hugh. And he was born again. This man who worked in the church and had so much biblical knowledge came alive. And how good is that? And it was a little man, little Bilney, who was there for him. Who received him, who lovingly and gently shared the gospel with him. And the church gained a disciple and a pastor in Hugh. You know, Hugh, Hugh Latimer, uh, was eventually martyred for his faith. He was burnt at the stake, actually, which has to be one of the most terrible ways to die. Can we be like little Bilney? Actually, that's the wrong question. We can be. The question is, will we be like little Bilney? Will we be like Priscilla and Aquila and make Jesus known? Not just known of, but with gentleness and faith, make him truly known. We're going to spend some time in prayer in a moment. But after sharing this story of Apollos, 
sharing the story of Hugh Latimer, I've got to ask. I don't know if this is your first time in church, your hundredth time in church. Maybe it's your thousandth time in church. Maybe you know of your need before God. Maybe you know that your life doesn't measure up to his standard. Maybe you know all of that, but you have believed somewhere along the line that you have to be good enough in your own strength. Well, I'm here to tell you as someone who's also been there along with Bill Nee and along with Priscilla and Aquila and along with Paul that none of us can measure up in our own strength. But the good news, the good news for you and I is that, that in Jesus we can. Your sin, like my sin, can be dealt with. And you, like me, can receive a righteousness, not your own. It's a gift. You don't deserve it, just like I don't. But God has given his son. He's confirmed it. He's committed. But do you want it? And if that's something you want to receive today, we're all going to pray for it in a moment. I'm going to be down here. Come and join me. Enter in. For the rest of you, though, I'm going to ask you to gather in groups of three or four just with the people near you. We're going to give you three or four minutes to pray for each other. Three or four minutes. Not that long. Don't steal everyone else's prayer time, I'm saying. But I want to ask you to pray specifically that this week, we, the person you're praying for, maybe just keep it simple, pray for the person on your left and go around. But pray specifically that this week we would have eyes to see the people God brings across our paths. That we would have the courage to talk with them and lastly, we would have the wisdom to share with them the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen? three or four minutes. You can't pray long, actually. We're not giving you that long. But pray for each other. Go do it.